a Kubernetes instance, occupies a wide footprint of multiple servers, creating an appealing target to an attacker due to its access to a large pool of compute resources. A common attack against an exposed Kubernetes cluster is to take it over for the purposes of mining cryptocurrency. Thus, it is important to keep a cluster secure. The importance of security is magnified for a cloud provider. A cloud provider runs a managed Kubernetes service, which might be running thousands of Kubernetes clusters. If the cloud provider's chosen distribution of Kubernetes contains a vulnerability, or if the Kubernetes instances are misconfigured, all of these clusters could be exposed to the same common vulnerability. Maya Kaczorowski works on the security of Google's managed Kubernetes service, GKE. In today's show, we discuss the attack surface of a managed Kubernetes service. Maya was previously on the show to talk about container security. This episode is a good companion to that one, as well as a previous show we did with Liz Rice about container security. So we now have covered container security, Kubernetes security, and container platform security. The Find Collabs podcast is out. Find Collabs is a company and a community I started recently, and the Find Collabs podcast covers some of the goings-on in that community. Find Collabs is also hiring a React developer, and we are looking for sponsorships for Q3 for Software Engineering Daily. If you're a company that wants to reach 30,000 developers, maybe many more, we actually don't have great statistics on how many listeners we have for complicated podcast infrastructure reasons, but if you are interested in reaching a large number of developers, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sponsor. Well, let's get on with today's show. Maya Kaczorowski, you are a product manager in container security at Google. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much for having me again. The last time we talked, I believe that the things that were at top of mind in terms of container security issues that you were concerned about or that you were addressing were things like, I've got an insecure Kubernetes cluster and somebody accesses it and starts mining Bitcoin. That was one thing. The other thing I I remember is people can... If your containers are insecure, perhaps people can jailbreak out of the containers. Yep. It's been, I think, about a year since we last talked. How has the world of container security evolved since then? Yeah, that's a great question. In the last year, we start to see the first couple of real attacks on Kubernetes in the wild. So first in you know late 2017 and early 2018, Tesla, Aviva, and Weight Watchers all had exposed Kubernetes dashboards that had credentials on them. So they, these were not password protected. Attacks were able to go in and grab those and start mining cryptocurrency kind of exactly, you know, as expected, more of the same types of attacks. We saw also Shopify had a researcher report an issue to their bug bounty program where their cluster had access to metadata that it shouldn't have had access to, known metadata. The researcher was able to have control over their whole cluster, which was not expected. And we also saw malware embedded in images on Docker Hub, the handful of images on Docker Hub that had cryptocurrency embedded malware in those in those images. So still seeing, you know, some of the, the things that you just described around having cryptocurrency mining is still very much what, what attackers are going for, any kind of way to make money, which is, you know, bots or cryptocurrency. I'm not really seeing kind of in the wild live attacks of container escapes yet. We actually did a show recently with a company called Safe Talpa that is working on 
basically their entire business focus is this crypto jacking issue. How big of an issue do you think this is going to be for the industry? I think it's the primary way that attackers have to make money if they can gain access to to cloud accounts today. Right? If you think about what people historically would have done, right? They want that. Your by cr- the way, is a huge statement. I mean, I believe you. It's just like <laughs> that is a, a big statement. I didn't realize. I mean, that's news to me. I think if you think about what attackers are historically going for, right, they just want to monetize what they have access to. And 10 years ago, that might have been stealing a credit card and selling it on the black market and making some profit from that, right? You know, five years ago, it was building a botnet. Today, mining cryptocurrency is probably the easiest way to make a lot of money online without people really noticing and being able to trace it back easily to you. And it's like just an open source script, right? It's like you yeah. you just install this little script thingy, maybe you obfuscate it a little bit. And then you're instantly mining cryptocurrency on somebody else's infrastructure. As soon as you can get access to it, you can install something. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's much more, that's something else that people don't realize is they think people are going after anything, and but also Kubernetes, to try to get to your workload. Nobody cares about your workload. <laughs> Nobody's actually trying to get to your user data. They just want to access your compute. It's not about the user data that's actually on that workload yet. If somebody is going for that, then they're actually a rather sophisticated attacker. And it's a targeted attack that's going after that particular workload. Tell me more about the dynamics of crypto jacking as you see it. I don't know. I think it's going to keep happening until we find a way of stopping it, right? It's typically somebody will download some sort of shell script that will, you know, execute, like you just described, a small binary, usually something that's open source or easily available. I might have bought something a little bit more sophisticated on the black market. And then I just funnel that back to my wallet somewhere. And it becomes very, very hard for me to trace that. And even if I can, the damage is already done. I already used up a bunch of compute. And if I'm operating a cloud or if I'm operating a Kubernetes cluster as like an enterprise, is there any way to scan my clusters to know if this kind of script is running on it? Yeah, I think there's a couple things you would, might want to look for. You would look for, or a couple different ways you, you, you could start to detect this. You could look for on public clouds if your billing suddenly goes up all of a sudden. That's a typical way that this that's is found on public clouds. Off. Yeah. If you have something mo- using monitoring of your CPU usage, that's another good way of looking at if, if it suddenly spikes up, something could have gone wrong. And then, you know, there are known IP addresses for Bitcoin miners, et cetera, or wallets. If you're connecting to any of those known addresses, ah, then you so know you that something like might, might be bad. Scanning the network connect- yeah. connectivity. But all of these, again, are assuming kind of relatively unsophisticated attackers. Right. I mean, if I look at those Docker Hub images, what they did really well was they were, you know, barely using any CPU. They were embedded in images that looked like they were harmless and were being used anyways. And how did they actually get caught? Was somebody just like looking through the container images and... Yeah, a researcher, I believe it was Chrome Tech, looked through and found, I think it was 17 images. And they, they looked like play images. They were called things like Docker, 123321. <sighs> Obviously things people were just rolling out to test things, hopefully not rolling out into production. And I will not quote the number because I don't remember it offhand, but it was on the order of millions of times that it was downloaded, these images. Hmm. When that happens, is there any way to like notify the people who, hey, you know, by the way... Yeah, you, that's, that's you are a real mining problem. Cryptocurrency. Is it? <laughs> yeah, so what you're describing is kind of this, this problem that we're seeing starting to emerge more and more, the software supply chain, where if I download an image from Docker Hub, I don't really know where it comes from. I don't really know whose binaries are in it. And I don't know who's running it at the end of the day. I don't actually know who pulled the image, what area it ended up in, et cetera. So this concept of a software supply chain, similar to a hardware supply chain, but for software, is to know where your binaries come from, where your dependencies come from, where your configs come from, and who has the authority to change those before they end up in your environment. And then once things are running in your environment, how do you know if you're actually affected by a new vulnerability? How do you know what's actually running? 
Is this a new problem, or has this been like you know, there's a pseudo apt get command I always used to run when I actually programmed computers. Like that's a thing where you get packages from some distribution system. Has it, has this always been a problem? I think it's always been a problem. It's something that attackers are starting to exploit more or are seeing as an opportunity to exploit more. So I mentioned Docker Hub. There was also the NPM security issue in about September where similarly package manager had a user maliciously install. Uh, a user had, had access to, to, to maintain the, the repository and maliciously installed, again, some, some cryptocurrency mining wallet type software. Mm. But at the end of the day, this is just due to the proliferation of software that exists in our infrastructure today, right? The fact that so many different people are using so many different open source components, right? If I look back at something like Heartbleed, which was, you know, five years ago now, OpenSSL is so widely used. Imagine if somebody purposefully put something bad in OpenSSL today. It would end up everywhere. Right. Right? There's no controls over where that goes because yeah. there's actually security in numbers and it's good to have you know, more eyes, you know, create shallower bugs, etc. But at the same time, you need to know where that's actually coming from and who's responsible for it. Are you surprised we haven't seen more like Mirai botnet level catastrophes happen across the industry? Given like given the kind of whenever I have a conversation with a security person, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so worried about the world. But in actuality, you don't seem to see too many things that I wake up and I'm like, I'm terrified today, you know, Mirai Botnet is attacking a DNS provider. Maybe you should be spending more time with security people. I don't know. Really? <laughs> no. Should I be more afraid? <laughs> I don't know that it's substantially worse than it was, you know, five years ago or anything like that. I think the threats are different. The attackers are evolving, but so are the defenders. So we're not, you know, net losing a battle or anything like that. Right. The attacks are certainly getting more sophisticated and more targeted. For an average user, an average developer, an average enterprise, unless you're being specifically targeted, it's still mostly drive-by attacks, right? I'm looking for an application that you're running that's sitting with a public IP address that has a known vulnerability, like Apache Struts, you know, left unpatched for many years, and then I'm just getting in and doing something harmless, relatively right. that harmless. That was the other recent one that, that freaked me out. And made me look up, like, what does my credit score actually do? Like, does this information actually relevant to me? Can I even do anything? Turns out the answer was probably not, really. I don't know. I froze my credit score. I don't think anything happened. You, you were better than me. I don't think I did anything. <laughs> yeah, and actually, no, you probably didn't waste your time, is, is what happened. To come back to the, the crypto jacking issue... What I find interesting about the cryptojacking space is like even if you you could compromise somebody's infrastructure but not actually mine the currency directly on the infrastructure you could send a blob of javascript to all of the the front end applications that are consuming that application and you can mine cryptocurrency in their browser. Have you have you seen oh, that attack? Oh, user browsers, yeah. Like I mean I guess that's not really See, that's kind of interesting because that's like kind of a vulnerability for the cloud provider, but it only affects the end user. Is there any way to scan for that? You know, I don't know offhand. I would look for the same types of web app vulnerabilities that I would have elsewhere. Right. You're looking at basically, you know, script injection to the browser. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier on container escapes. Yeah, yeah. So we haven't seen that in the wild. We have had vulnerabilities more recently that have exposed that as a potential attack method, right? So that Run-C had a vulnerability about six weeks ago now. That was exactly this. It was a container escape. And I think we're seeing a lot more interest and excitement in this because people don't understand that containers aren't 
actually very good at containing. Yeah. They're, they're really good at making applications portable, but they're not meant to be this, this what you call, I think, you know, a jail effectively. That's not, that's not their goal. So there are new projects like GVisor, like Kata containers, Nambla containers, etc., filling that space. And what do they do that lets them have better security properties? Is there anything specifically that they're containing? Effectively, you're just restricting the set of calls that the application mm. can make to make fewer risky application calls. Mm. So if, if a file read or file write was particularly susceptible, then you might want to say, no, I don't want you to do this in my environment. And you're less likely to have an attacker be able to exploit that to use it to do something bad. In working on container security at Google, are, are you specifically in the Google Cloud division or are you also working on like Borg container security? Yeah, I primarily focus on Google Cloud. Google Cloud, okay. And do you have conversations with people in the Borg area, or does is it, does that even matter? I mean... Definitely. I mean, Google Security is effectively one security team for both Google and Google Cloud. Hmm. So it covers all aspects of security. Tell me about some of those conversations. Like, what is a lunchtime conversation between two container security experts? I think some of the things that we, we think about a lot and worry about a lot is having you know, multiple layers of isolation. So we just talked very briefly about container escapes and whatnot. The idea being you should never have to only rely on one one layer to get security, right? An attacker should have to have two different sets of things that fail in order for them to, to actually successfully compromise something. And that applies to container security, but that applies and for container isolation, but that applies in terms of any types of security at Google. If I think about encryption, for example, we encrypt data at the d- device layer and then again at the file system layer. We encrypt data in transit at the network layer and again at the application layer. Like I need two separate controls to fail in order for something to, to then be broken and for the attacker to have access to something. So that's the kind of thing that, how do you build that into, into mm-hmm. containers, into the newer technology that we're developing now? Hmm. Do you focus specifically on container security right now, or is there also like the Kubernetes control plane security that, you're, that you think about? I think about both. There's a handful of product managers focusing on all of these areas, mm-hmm. so it's not exclusively me. <laughs> yeah. And do you think of security as something that, in terms of container security, are you thinking of it more in terms of this is something where I want to offer a granular set of features to the end user, or are you thinking of it more as this is container secu- security of your containers is something that should just silently exist? I'm leaning more towards the latter. It's not about it being silently existed, existing. It's more about the user shouldn't have to make a lot of those decisions, right? We should give the user sane defaults and strong configurations so that they don't have to go configure something if they never quite get around to doing it. Mm. So if I look at GKE, for example, some of the configurations that we've made in GKE have changed in the last you know, year or two to have those stronger defaults, things like having RBAC on by default, things like having the Kubernetes dashboard disabled by default, new changes to not having you know, basic auth and client certs created for new clusters. These are small things that can be then exploited by an attacker that are unnecessary, right? You're creating a larger surface of attack without having a good reason for doing so. And that's, that's ultimately not a good security principle, right? You want to balance security and usability. In some areas of security, you have an uneven publicity that you want to expose for a given issue. So if like an issue is, if you discover a super sensitive issue as a security researcher, you don't want to just go like publish it on a forum somewhere because instantly a bunch of people are going to get taken advantage of. But obviously that's, you know, that comes at odds with the whole open source aspect of it. How does that balance get struck in the Kubernetes and container community? 
Yeah, what you're describing is what's referred to as responsible disclosure. Responsible disclosure. So if I'm an attacker, or I should say not an attacker, if I'm a gray hat researcher, I shouldn't necessarily go tweet about the new thing that I found and the new O-Day. It's my responsibility to go first, tell the people who are affected that they're affected, give them a, a chance to develop a patch, respond, etc. And if I've got, you know, zero response from them, if I if they've told me, you know, some ridiculous timeline in which they're going to patch it, etc., something that's not acceptable, then I might go and make it public to get more attention and try to get that fixed. If I look at Kubernetes, Kubernetes actually has a very good vulnerability response system, especially, you know, for an open source project of its age, it's doing incredibly well. So there's a product security team that will take any incoming vulnerabilities that get reported by the community. The product security team evaluates those, creates a patch. This is all under embargo, so this is not done in, in public. Communicates back to the researcher, the timeline, et cetera, that they're, that they're working on. That's actually one of the key pieces I think a lot of programs miss. You want to be able to tell the researcher that what they did matters, right? Yes, we listen to you and we're working on it, not like, you know, give them complete silence for a couple of months. Develops a patch on, under embargo, distributes the patch using the private distributors list. So anyone who's a official distribution of Kubernetes uh, will get this patch ahead of time. And then the embargo lifts and patches tend to roll out at that period in time. So, so users are notified and then the patch is made available in coordination. So that's what's happened with, you know, probably about a dozen vulnerabilities now in Kubernetes. Kubernetes will send a bulletin to the Kubernetes security announce mailing list with all the details of the, of the, of the vulnerability, where the patch is available, how to get the patch, etc. And most major providers now are kind of updating their own security bulletins to have that information as well. As you said, you iterate over time on the same defaults that you want to specify in in your infrastructure. The, the infrastructure is a service stuff that you provide to people. If you have a customer that has misconfigured something or or has an a less sane default, how aggressively do you want to proactively let them know? Or to what extent do you actually have visibility into those less sane defaults they have selected? Yeah, so I think in GKE, it depends on whether you're making the change in the GKE API or the Kubernetes API. I know that sounds to a lot of users like it's the same. But when you're making a change to the GKE API, we do have metrics on kind of how many users overall have turned this on and off. For the Kubernetes API, we look at that a lot less because it's part of your cluster. That's your data, your configuration. And so for GKE API, we might know, for example, how many users have turned on pod security policy or metadata concealment, network policy. These are good defaults to have. What is pod pod security policy? Pod security policy is a Kubernetes feature that limits the permissions that your pod can run as. So if you want to enforce things like seccomp for your pods, pod security policy is the way to do it. What is setcom? Seccomp, sorry. Uh, Secure computing mode restricts the calls that your application can make to kind of a normal behavior, whatever normal means for your application. It's a feature of the Linux kernel. It's not specific to Kubernetes. Okay. Tell me more about some of this. So, like, if I am using, you know, not to turn this into a like a promo or something, but uh, you know, we are at Google Cloud. So, if I'm using Google Kubernetes engine, what security features am I getting out of the box? And just tell me from a like product manager, product design standpoint. Yeah, I mean, you're getting all of Google's underlying infrastructure security. So things like encryption at rest by default, encryption to the front end, in transit by default, and internally when it crosses physical boundaries, Google's custom-built hardware, Google's secure boot and integrity measurement, all the underlying pieces of Google's infra. And then in GKE itself, Google manages the control plane. So it manages the master VMs, the API server, etcd, all of that for you. 
we have some documentation that explains how that's secured. And there's actually a talk that I gave yesterday that explains a bit more how these components are secured. And then the nodes, Google manages the default configuration, provides patches for your worker nodes, and you're responsible for updating those nodes when new patches are available. And then you're still responsible for managing your own workloads. So when it comes to things like specific configurations, like you're asking, what do I get out of the box by default? It's a lot of the hardening of the control plane and a lot of the good defaults for nodes. So I mentioned earlier things like RBAC on by default, things like the dashboard not deployed by default, basic auth is d disabled by default, client certificates are also disabled by default, the GCE metadata API, the legacy one is disabled by default, uh, cloud audit logging has a, a good policy on by default and logs automatically the stack driver. There's a bunch of stuff that you don't have to configure related to the control plane. And then for your nodes, we put you on COS by default, container-optimized OS. You can also choose Ubuntu. COS has a lot of nice security properties, like it has firewalls for what, what ports can be used. It has a read-only root file system, which is actually what prevented COS from being affected by the recent Run-C vulnerability. It has a secure boot, and it's able to be rebuilt reproducibly by Google since it's based off of Chromium, which means that we can really easily patch it in the case of a security incident, more so than a third-party OS. So that kind of default where you don't actually have to make that choice and you just kind of get it. Oh, I'll mention one more actually because I'm excited about this one. A node auto upgrade is on by default for clusters created in the UI hmm. and is on by default for gcloud beta starting in 113. Node auto upgrade means that we can apply patches to your nodes, your worker nodes, automatically. And specifically, what makes me as a security person excited is we can apply security patches to your nodes automatically. In some cases where we can apply those patches before the embargo is lifted, we do. And that's actually created both joy and confusion in some of our customers who you know, email me and ask, there's a new vulnerability, I'm affected, what do I do? And I'm like, you're already patched. And they're like, no, 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 it's new. It's from today. I'm affected. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 you're already patched. Like, how do I explain this to you? You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, I think Node Auto Upgrade is one of the coolest things that we have and, and rolling it up by default kind of incrementally in our, in our fleet. You mentioned securing etcd. Just as an example, you know, for people who have not heard a previous episode about container security, why is securing etcd so important? What, what would the vulnerabilities be if I had an insecure etcd? etcd is kind of like the hard drive for your cluster. It maintains state for everything that's going on in your cluster. It would be like somebody taking your laptop and stealing the hard drive. They get all of your data stored at rest, all of your configurations. They can reproduce your cluster effectively somewhere else and make it look just like your existing cluster. Right? It's stealing all of your IP related to your cluster. Also stored in etcd are your secrets. So any secrets that your cluster needs to access, like API keys, OAuth tokens, etc., are stored in etcd. So that's particularly sensitive information. What goes into securing that? So etcd running on GKE is encrypted at rest. We have limited ports that are open so that it can communicate only with the API server and with other instances of etcd. There's also a feature that we have called application layer secrets encryption to further encrypt the secrets that you have in there at the application layer if you want to. But in general, if I'm going to run etcd myself, it's one of those things that I would want to really, really lock down and not put on the public web. So like, if I go look on Shodan today, yes, I can find lots of Kubernetes dashboards, but I can also find a lot of etcd running out there. And that concerns me a lot, because I don't think people realize that's a potential attack vector to their cluster. And what would that, like, if you wanted to scare somebody straight, what should they be concerned about? If somebody can access etcd, they can take down your cluster, replicate your cluster. Like, this is, assuming you're running anything important in Kubernetes, that's that's dangerous. Yeah. Does etcd 
in practice, does it kind of like get abused? Do people use it more as like this general like key value store they can write and read from rather than just like for very narrow purposes? Yeah, it's a general database. It's not specific to Kubernetes. It just happens to be used in Kubernetes as the maintainer of state. Mm. Interesting. What was your presentation yesterday about? Yeah, yesterday I talked about the shared responsibility model in GKE. So if you think about shared responsibility, you might have heard this term before. It describes when you're in the cloud, what is the cloud provider's responsibility to secure versus what is the user's responsibility to secure. Hmm. And if I look at something like GKE, it kind of falls in that, you know, passy middle where it's not super clear sometimes what's the user's responsibility versus what's the what's Google's responsibility. And it's also not always transparent to the user what Google's already doing to secure them. So trying to better explain that. Okay, explain it to me. (laughs) So Google's responsible for the control plane and providing strong defaults for the nodes, including node configurations and the OSs and patches. The user's responsible for updating the nodes by applying those patches, unless they have node auto-upgrade turned on, in which case that becomes Google's responsibility as well. And the user is responsible for their own workloads running on top of GKE, just like they'd be responsible for their workloads running on top of App Engine or running on top of GCE. Hmm. And go a little deeper into that. Like, what are some of the, as the product manager, I assume you're the product manager around this, well, shared responsibility, that's not, I guess it's not really a product. That's more just a feature of designing cloud services. What are some of the subjective decisions you have to make as a cloud provider when the reality is that it's a shared responsibility system. The hardest decision to make is how much control you give the user. You want them to be able to do everything they want to do for their workload without shooting themselves in the foot. And so this is a little bit of the conversation we've been having around defaults. If we can turn Node auto-upgrade on by defaults everywhere, if we can get more and more users using Node auto-upgrade, we can patch you in case there's an incident, and that's a a net better for you, and it's a net better for us because we know that you're running a relatively recent version, Right. If I look at something like SSHing into your nodes, a lot of users still SSH into their nodes on GKE. That is a potential surface of attack that has, a, there's a lot less that we can do to actually control what goes on there. So we can't actually control if it's, you know, user A or user B from your company if you, if you don't have your own way of controlling how that's managed. Okay. One subject that I think would probably fall under the category of the user's responsibility is the security policy management so like who has access within my organization who has access to what database who has which service can talk to another service this has been an area that has kind of surprised me with how interesting it is so i guess you know the classic way of managing these kinds of policies is like you have this big central security policy manager thing and every time your service needs to figure out like can i talk to this other database over here i have to go to this central like broker of information about my security policy and that can be like kind of an expensive network lookup but then with the kind of the service proxy or the service mesh model you have this convenient little sidecar container that does stuff for you you can put the necessary security policies for your service in that sidecar and you can have the sidecar kind of aggressively update its cache and and whatnot. Tell me about that that area of the security policy management, particularly the, the sidecar model as it relates to that. Yeah, what you're describing is very similar to what we do internally at Google and what exists and is being built into Istio. So the idea that service-to-service communication should meet certain a certain bar, right? Services should be mutually untrusted. I don't necessarily know every service that I deploy into my environment. Zero trust. Yes, exactly. 
services should have to authenticate to each other as a result. Service-to-service communication should be encrypted by default. And those kinds of requirements that if I was going to implement as a third-party service that every other service had to talk to would actually have been effectively impossible to implement, right? I'd have to have everybody go change the application code and change what they're doing to then go talk to some central credential service to get a credential to go talk to the other service. And it would never, like, that would never roll out effectively. And I'd have to have, you know, the central credential service would have to have an immense amount of load to people to handle all, to be able to handle all the load that was coming in from the other services. So the idea of having a service mesh is that you can have these sidecars and this policy live in between all of these services and enforce that dynamically rather than having to go through a central service for policy enforcement. And does the sidecar model, does it materially reduce latency and does that matter for most people like relative to the centralized policy manager? I think it has minimal performance impact, but relative to the centralized policy manager, it's not... I don't know that performance would be what I would be comparing it to. I'd be comparing it to, I don't know, ease of implementation, like I, like I already mentioned. The issue is not about, I can still have a central policy. I can still query everything and get my policy centrally somewhere and see what's going on. Mm. The issue is more about getting it actually rolled out in my infrastructure and mm. making changes easily when I need to. Mm. So to wrap up, I'm starting to get ready for, for the next KubeCon, the one in Spain. What are the areas I should look at within the container security space that I may not be looking at right now? Or what projects in the Kubernetes space would you recommend me going deeper into? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on. One is this policy area you just mentioned, OPA. If you've looked at that, the open policy agent, there's a lot of excitement and interest around how to use that type of functionality to enforce policy in my clusters, especially when my clusters live in multiple different clouds or I have some clusters on-prem and some in the cloud. Sure. That's one area of interest. I think another area of interest or where I hope to see more things happening is in the container kind of threat space. There's still not a lot of open source tooling to help me figure out what's actually going on in my environment. And I really wish some people would start to develop some open source tooling there to, to help to better inform to introspect users. introspect or something? To, to introspect, to detect threats, et cetera. There's still a fairly vendor-focused vendor yeah. vendor space, yeah. That would be an area that I'd be interested in. A related area to that would be forensics. I think as we're going to start to see the first attacks that are targeting Kubernetes and Kubernetes workloads, rather than just targeting credentials like we've seen so far, we're going to have to do snapshots of containers, which is not something that is well understood. So that might be another area. There'll be some other innovation That's hopefully coming soon. That's a hard problem. Yeah. The snapshot problem. It's, yeah. It seems hard. From I've talked to one vendor. That's another kind of vendor-specific thing right now. Yeah. And then another area that I've seen a couple of talks on the KubeCon agenda for are around confidential computing, which should be pretty exciting. So confidential computing is the idea that the underlying compute provider, so whether it's a cloud provider or anybody else who has access to your hypervisor effectively, can't see what's going on, what you're actually actually doing in the VM or in the container. Is that the homomorphic encryption thing, or is that different? So homomorphic encryption attempts to solve the same problem, but confidential compute doesn't necessarily have to use homomorphic encryption. It can be done using specialized hardware. Hmm. There are other methods as well. Cool. Well, that should keep me occupied. (laughs) Thank you, Maya. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me. Wow.